0: Hello, people of the way, if you have your Bible, please open up to Numbers 13, Numbers 13, and here in these particular passages of Numbers, it's it, it breaks my heart so much to see what's happening with Israel, because we see how they have uh, uh, they're murmuring and complaining uh, in the past last several chapters that we've looked at. You see them begin to murmur and complain. And the Lord is teaching them, the Lord is disciplining them, the Lord is chastising them. Always remember that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And remember this too, when you are under the chastisement of the Lord. You know, when we are a people under the chastisement of the Lord. And we see these beautiful passages here. I say beautiful, but at the same time, painful. Painful because of what is happening, not just the murmuring and complaining that we've seen so far, and we're going to see more, but you see fear and doubt, fear and doubt. As you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but we're going to look at some verses in the next two chapters really quick. You see in chapter 13, verse 2, God's promise where he says, I am giving to the children, the, it says the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. That's God's promise to say the land of, of Canaan. It's for you. It's for you to Israel. And here you have the report of man is in verse 27, chapter 13, verse 27 and 28. The report of man is this. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. You see... It just, it blows me away so much because in verse 2, what do we see? The Lord gives them the land. This land is yours, you guys. And then all of a sudden, you look in verse 28, and what do you see? Oh, wait a second. The people are strong. The people who live there, they're strong. Their cities are fortified and very large. And then in verse 31, now you see the fear of man which is but the men who had gone up with them said we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we you see all of a sudden you see the seeds of doubt entering in the camp of israel a small group of people and then it becomes endemic to the entirety of israel not the entirety but a large portion and then look at chapter 14 verse 11 Chapter 14, verse 11, you see the heart of God, how he feels about this. In chapter 14, verse 11, then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? Whoa, that's hardcore. How long, Moses, he says. How long will these people reject me and how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? You see. It just, it blows me away so much because you have the promise of God in chapter 13, verse 2, where he says, hey, this is for you. This is for you. But then all of a sudden, you know, they're so eager. They're so, okay, yes, this is for us. And then all of a sudden they go and they see the descendants of Anak in verse 28, chapter 13, verse 28. They see the descendants of Anak. And what does that instill? Fear. In verse 31, chapter 13, these guys are stronger than us. They're stronger than us. They already have the promise of God, but no, these guys are stronger than us. What about you and me? When we already have the promises of God for fill in the blank, whatever is whatever's in his word, we already have the promises of God regarding fill in the blank and not just don't you know, just pull it out of your head like you know like oh, okay I have you know I have the promise of God regarding a brand new Ferrari no I have the promise of God regarding comfort in times of peril I have the the, the promise of God regarding uh, uh 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 comfort and peace and his grace his mercies in times of whatever situation you're in the promises of God that we have but then what is it that we see with our eyes Oh, but wait a second, maybe I can't have peace because of, maybe I can't have hope because of, and then whatever it is, whatever situation you face. And when Israel did that, you see the Lord comments to Moses, remember, he speaks to Moses as like friends face to face uh, uh like uh, the closeness like we studied last week you know like not it, it translates as mouth to mouth but it's like uh, 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 uh mouth near mouth so close and the Lord says how long will these people reject me not how long will these people doubt me how long will these people reject me you see? reject me which translates as like a form of hatred too it's like reject but like in a despising kind of way. how long will these people reject me and how long will they not believe me with with all the signs which I have performed among them remember this is this is post mana. this is post quail even and quail was a, 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 a was more of a curse than it was a blessing if not all a curse. Because, you know, day one, day two, it's like, wow, we get to eat quail. But then week one, week two, whoa, that's not, it's like the people were starting to get sick of it. And it's not just where the Lord says in chapter 14, verse 11, how long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me? But then we look at chapter 14, verse 29, God's verdict and his judgment He says in verse 29, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. Whoa. Whoa. We're only in chapter 13 today, but I wanted to look at these, you know, a little bit, you know, fast forward in chapter 13 and then fast forward even in our study next week in chapter 14 to kind of explain to you what's happening here in these passages. Because you see the fear and the doubt of Israel. What about the fear and doubt inside of you and inside of me? You see? What about our own levels of fear, our own levels of doubt? I say levels of doubt, but what about our own fear period, our own doubt period? What does the Lord think about it? What does the Lord... You know what I love about our relationship with the Lord? We can go to Him. Freely. Freely. You remember the veil was torn from top to bottom. We have intimacy with the Lord, with Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High. And He meets us in our place. And we meet Him. And our intimacy is so close to him where he says, abide in me and I in you. That's how close our intimacy is with the Lord. I say that's how it is with the Lord, but that's how close it can be. If you don't have intimacy with the Lord, change your way. Get intimacy with the Lord. Have intimacy with the Lord and abide in him. And fall more and more and more in love with him every single day. Falling deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in love with the Lord. And he will help you with your fear. The same way he helped me with my fears. He will help you with your doubt. The same way he helped me with my doubts. I don't tell you these things from, you know, like, okay, you guys live your life like this. I tell you these things experientially and then at the same time we see these fears and doubts in the camp of israel how did this get here that's we're going to look at the next couple weeks you know lord willing chapter 13 and 14 but you know it's we're going to see how is it that these things happened what were the steps that that led to this point because remember it remember israel has already learned some very valuable lessons very poignant lessons and very hard hitting and sobering lessons. And in some cases, people died already because of choices they made because of their own doubts. People have died already. And yet they still have not learned now. Not to get on a a, a high horse and be like, wow, you know, what's wrong with Israel? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? But remember, Israel as a personification of you. You as a personification of Israel when you see the ups and downs of Israel. You see? What about, you know, your ups and downs in your life? Sometimes people get into uh, 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 like borderline replacement theology. By saying, wow, look, Israel, how dare you, how dare you, how dare you. Oh, we're the church, we're, we're better than you. But Paul says, no, these things written of old are written for us. He says that to a new new covenant people. So now let's start in chapter 13, verse 1. When we think about fear and doubt, you know, don't think like, oh, fear and doubt, no big deal. No, it's a huge deal. Because we lean on the word of God. We lean on the promises of the Lord, and we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. This is no small thing. It's a huge deal. And when we ended our study last week in chapter 12, verse 16, says, afterward, the people moved from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now, this area of Paran, it's now if we're gonna see here when when uh, you know when you're gonna see like the merging of historical places that we've already studied in Genesis, such as Canaan. Chapter thirteen, verse two says Canaan. But that's remember the Canaanites were descendants of Ham. Remember Ham, the son of disobedience, who saw his father's nakedness. That's the Canaanites. But then this area, Paran, it is, you know, uh, this is where, uh, uh, if you recall in our study in Genesis chapter 21, it's where you see uh, that God's promise to Ishmael. God's promise to uh, uh, Abraham, but promises towards Ishmael. So these areas aren't, aren't new places per se. It's new to these particular people because it's like, you know, it's in it's in their lineage of history, so to speak. But then at the same time, there these are uh, recurring locations. And you see in these lands, the Canaanites, the, the, the where Ishmael was in the wilderness, even God became forgotten in them. Because I mean, even God became forgotten in Israel when they, when they were in Egyptian captivity. That was kind of like our, our uh, introduction into the book of Exodus, if you recall. It's a big problem when the Lord is forgotten. It's a huge problem. Look at, you know, the Western culture today. Look at the world today. I say Western culture. I teach out of the United States. But United States today, we've forgotten the Lord. I have very, very strong convictions that we've already entered into judgment, already entered into judgment. And now the hardcore focal point is on the remnant, the remnant. That's my own personal convictions is that we've already bridged that gap between, you know, uh, um, you know, of course, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But don't forget, there is a period of time where a people, a land, even individually, a group of people, a nation can enter into God's judgment. And I have very strong convictions on, you know, like, are, are we in that time period where we have bridged that gap of entering into God's judgment? And me personally, yeah. I mean, more will be revealed in time, but wow, the days are so dark. Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, the days are so dark. Sin. It's its like a new level of evil. its its It's where good is evil and evil is good. And Isaiah 5 tells us about that. Woe to that general. Woe to those people who call evil good and good evil. It's not good. And you see the The rise of all things evil. And it's like, whoa, what is happening here? But when you see that in the Bible, there's always a remnant. Always. Safety for a very special people. You know, people who fear the Lord. And love the Lord. And prophetically speaking, you know, I I read the Bible, I I see what's going on in the world, and it's like, whoa, you know, are we at that stage of, like, entering into judgment? Remember, judgment comes first in the house of God. Judgment comes first in the house of God. That's what's written in the Bible. And then judgment comes on the land. So, precursory to judgment coming upon the world is judgment coming in the church. Look at the church today. The church today is a mess a mess and i don't say that you know disrespectfully to the lord but you can't deny it god has become forgotten even in his own house you see And so let's look what happens here in chapter 13, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. So that's God's promise. Like, you know, this land is yours, you guys. This land is yours. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man. Now, you know, as a a special word of encouragement to my sisters in Christ... You know, you shall send a man. Remember, this first generation, they have issues. The next generation that enters into the promised land, if you recall our studies, our introduction into the book of Numbers. And you see like, wow, there's some issues here. On the outside, looking in, it's like, okay, everything's fine and dandy. But when you're on the inside, looking around, it's like, whoa, there's some issues here. There's some issues here. A lot of it dealing with murmuring and complaining. And now we're seeing their fear and their doubts. Even after all the Lord has done. You see? You shall send a man, everyone, a leader among them. So if you remember in chapter 1, you know, in the beginning of the, when when the command was given to take a census. And it was all the, the men, all who were able to go To war. They were able. They were capable of fighting. Men. Young men. Old men. But still men able to go to war. Not the you know the uh, 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 crippled. Not the one you know a couple guys missing some legs. Missing some arms. No. It's all the men who were able to go to war. So they're able. Able bodied men. Except. Something happens inside inside of them that instills fear. You know, and I have to say, I I have seen really, really humongous behemoths of men before. Except they're scaredy cats. Really, really big, gigantor men, strong, everything. But Inside, I mean, that's just the shell of a body Inside, you know, where is their, they they have no mental fortitude, no mental toughness We look at physical, we look at the outside and we're like, wow, look, that guy's so tough Wow, that guy's such so, wow, you know, I'm not gonna fight that guy But what about mental toughness? What about mental toughness? And I speak about guys, but you know, I remember one time I was watching this report, this news report several, several years ago, there was a, a Muslim guy who chopped off the head of a, of a soldier. This is in the UK. He chopped off the head of a soldier and everybody was afraid. Everybody was running. They were afraid. People were crying. And there was this lady who got in the guy's face. She says, how dare you do this? And I was watching the news report and I was like, oh, my goodness, that lady, her bravery is like, wow, that her bravery was just a bravery was off the charts. And so a lot of times you think of like toughness as like a physical toughness. But no, what about the mental toughness, the mental fortitude to say, you know what, I'm going to be fearless. And I'm speaking about mental fortitude. But then, you know, what's even better than that? A faithful heart faithfulness unto the Lord leaning on his promises from his word and that's what you don't see in the majority of people in chapter 13 and 14 you don't see that in the majority but you do see it in a small minority you do do see it in a little remnant In verse 3, so Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to all, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. So, you know, you can read this and be like, wait a second, you know, because we read some verses ahead in chapter 13 and even in chapter 14, you read this, you're like, wait a second, is God setting them up? Is God setting them up for a fall? Man, like here, He's telling them to do this, but then all of a sudden, He, you know, He He condemns them. Is it a big setup? Number one, I'm not a Calvinist. Okay, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not Reformed theology. I'm not into that. I call it. They say Reformed theology, but I call it Reformed theory because it's just a theory. I'm not a Calvinist. You know, the people have their choice to make. Israel has their choice to make. The same way you have your choice to make. So it's like, wait a second. Did God set them up? No, not at all. You see, their faith is being tested the same way our faith is tested today. Turn with me really quick to James chapter one. James chapter one. And here, brother James, he writes inspired by the Holy Spirit in verse two. James one, verse two. He says, my brethren, my brethren. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Do you know how contrary to the carnal nature that is? To fall into various trials and consider it joy? How contrary? alone? Just verse 2 alone by itself. Do you know how contrary that is to the natural man, to the natural woman? It's these things that Brother James writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're spiritually discerned that you can be in various trials and even still count it as joy. Why? Because verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And let's not let it end there. You know, it's not just, okay, you know, let it produce patience and then go on our merry way. No, let it produce patience, but then in verse four, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, just like you see in our study on Sunday in in, in 1 Corinthians chapter two, how Paul reserved wisdom from them. He withheld wisdom from the church in Corinth because they weren't ready for it. They were immature. They were babies. But it's not to say wisdom is not for you. It's to say wisdom is not for you at this time, church in Corinth. And if you're a young Christian, it's not to say wisdom is not for you. Just not at this time. You have to grow. You have to mature. And patience. This is part of maturity, part of maturing in Christ. Let patience have its perfect work that we may be perfect and complete lacking nothing and then in verse 5 he says if you if, if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask of god who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him but let him ask in faith with no doubting very interesting do you see how doubt presents huge problems in the life of a believer because what if we're a people who doubts this, doubts that, doubt here, doubt there, doubt everywhere, doubt left, doubt right, doubt up, doubt down, everywhere we, every is doubt all around us. What happens? When he says here in verse 6, but let him ask, ask in faith with no doubting. Well, if we have... A uh, 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 continual doubting, continual doubts for, you know, fill in the blank, continual doubts for X, y, Z, A B C B, C, one, two, three. If we have continual doubt, then how can verse six happen in our lives? Because Brother James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, let him ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Driven and tossed by the wind. Whoa. Do you see the danger of doubt? Can you see the danger of doubt, my brother? Can you see the danger of doubt, my sister? Don't doubt. Easier said than done, right? Well, that's why we let patience have its perfect work. Because you might doubt once, you might doubt twice, you might doubt over situation one, situation two, situation A, situation B, situation whatever. And in the aftermath of that doubt, when you allow patience to have its perfect work, you learn and a lot of times you learn from your mistakes. If you're like me, you learn from your mistakes. And then you wonder, you reflect back, and you're like, wow, Lord, how could I have doubted? Lord, forgive me for my doubt. Lord, I repent for my doubt. And then you're going to come across a similar situation. A situation where doubt is going to be maybe the first thought that comes in your mind. But then you're going to reflect back. And you're going to make a decision that honors the Lord. And what is the decision? To ask the Lord in faith. With no doubting. Because you've tried it before. You've tried the doubt route before. And it failed you. And maybe you were chastised of the Lord. Because remember, he disciplines those whom he loves. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Do you know how hardcore that is? In verse 7. That's what happens when you doubt. That's what happens when I doubt, when we doubt. I don't want to be a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. I don't want to be in a situation where the Bible, the Holy Word of God says that I will receive nothing because of my doubt. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for any of us. Because we are a peculiar people of the way, a people who walks by faith and not by sight. If you walk by sight, cut it out, okay? Stop walking by sight. I mean... I say cut it out, but I say that lovingly. If I were with you face to face, I'd probably embrace you too and tell you to your ear. Hey, you walk by sight and you know, you say in my ear, yes. I say, okay, cut it out. Cut it out. Don't do that anymore. Because the Holy Spirit inspired Brother James to write these words. Do you know how dangerous doubt is for a Christian? For you and for me. When Brother James here says, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Do You know what double-minded here? It's like, it's it's spiritual bipolar. Have you ever talked with somebody who's bipolar? It's, I mean, it's insane. I mean, you know, no pun intended, but it's crazy because I mean, they're happy one minute and then like five minutes later, they're mad at you. You're like, what did I do? And like, they answer, but then it's like, what? What's happening here? There's a spiritual element to the mental mental uh, uh, diseases. You know what mankind calls mental diseases. There's a spiritual element there. You can't deny that, and it's gonna get worse and worse and worse as the days get darker and darker and darker, and as doctors prescribe more medication, medication, medication. You talk to vets. You know, vets who are traumatized from combat situations and they have have PTSD and then they go into the VA hospital and in the hospital, they just give them a cocktail of drugs, a drug for this, a drug for that, a drug for this, a drug for that. Now, in certain states, they they're using um, uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, psychotropic drugs in, 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 in treating PTSD. So in the VA hospital and VA facilities, they're giving referrals out to these community doctors And the community doctors, they're giving magic mushrooms. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Magic mushrooms being prescribed for PTSD. On top of that, you have pain meds on top of that, you know, antidepressants on top of that. You have all. It's just a cocktail. There's going to be zombies. I mean, there's zombies already today. But it's just going to be even more zombies. That's what the Bible says here in verse 8. He is double, spiritually speaking, he is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. I don't want that to be said of me. I don't want that to be said of you. Do you see what doubt does? You think, oh, yeah, just a little doubt. No big deal. Well, it's a huge deal, my friend. It's a huge deal. And that's what happens in the testing of our faith. In verse 3. The testing of our faith produces patience. And it's not patience like, you know, period. I mean, you know, there's a period, but I meant like, you know, for us, you know, we continue. Let patience have its perfect work. What is its perfect work? Well, the Lord wants to deal with my doubt. He wants to deal with your doubt. And he wants to deal with your fears. It's how we begin to fear the Lord and not fear the situations around us, but we fear the Lord and the Lord alone. Let's go back to our study in Numbers because you see this exemplified in the people of Israel when they have fear. So look at verse 4. So, you know, there's the, 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 Lord's, the Lord gives them the command uh, the gives Moses the command, you know, Hey, the land of Canaan, it's yours. And so Moses in obedience, he calls these guys and then they, they, their, their recon mission, you know, they, to go out and, you know, send out every man in accordance with what the Lord told them to do in verse four. Now, these were the names of the, these were the, the, now these were their names from the tribe of Reuben, Shamuah. The son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. Now, Hoshea, that's Joshua. Joshua. So, very interesting. You have Caleb and Joshua. You know, when the Lord told in chapter 14, when the Lord says in, in verse twenty nine, chapter fourteen, verse twenty nine, the Lord says, "The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness." But in in verse thirty, he says, "Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun." So, Jacob, uh, uh, Joshua, and Caleb, they they were the only ones. Everybody else, no, they died in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. Very interesting because you know you go back to chapter thirteen, verse uh, uh, six and verse eight, and you see Caleb and Hosea. What do you see? The tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Judah. Uh, when you re- we're gonna get study more. Not it's gonna be a long ways out, but to grease the skids for you. When we get to the passages of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, you're gonna we're gonna read in the Kings and the Chronicles, but there's a division that happens with Israel where the ten tribes go in the north and the two tribes in the south. That division, it's you know, it's based on a lot of it has it's politics. It has some of some of it taxation even, but. Uh, um, you're going to see this division in the camp of Israel, how the 10 tribes go to the north, the two tribes in the south. And the 10 tribes in the north is referred to as Ephraim. And the two tribes in the south is referred to as uh, Judah. So you have the two tribes in the south, Judah, and then you have the 10 tribes in the north, which is Ephraim or Israel. So you have those, that dichotomy there, that, that faction, that breakup and the, the division between the two, or between the one. But there's the division where they become two. The 10 tribes in the north, Eph, Ephraim or Israel, they go into Assyrian captivity. And then several years later, the uh, uh, Judah, the two tribes in the south, they go into Babylonian captivity. And in those two factions, the Lord sends prophets to them. And what do the prophets say? repent, 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 repent. Return to me, return to me, come back to me, deny your ways. That's what the Lord says. He chooses a remnant of very special, peculiar people. I say peculiar, not like, you know, strange, like, you know, they're just weird. I mean, strange, like, you know, when everybody goes into crazy town, there's a peculiar people who holds on to the Lord. You see? What about the last days? When everybody goes off into crazy town, I'm talking about the church. When the church goes off into crazy town, what about you? Don't go off into crazy town. You stay on that narrow path. You stay in the way. You see, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He is the only way. One way. But it's very interesting when we see this, how Caleb and Hosea or Caleb and Joshua, they're the only ones that go the net for the next generation. They're the only ones that pass. Everybody else dies in the wilderness. You know, prophetically speaking, you know, when you see the uh, 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 Ephraim and Judah, uh, when we get into first kings, the, the kings of the Chronicles, just so you know, First Kings is written uh, uh, before captivity, kind of like a, a real-time account. But then we get into Chronicles, it's almost, you're, you're going to read it or we're going to study it. And be like, wow, this almost sounds like exactly the same as the Kings. Well, it is, except it's written after captivity. So you're going to see uh, uh, similarities in the Chronicles, except it's written from a different perspective. It's written from a people who have learned their lesson. It's written from a post-chastised people. I mean, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, if you were to give real time of like, you know, hey, you know, you write like a diary or say you're like on social media. I mean, this is is, you're a non-Christian. Okay, you're a non-Christian and you're, you know, you're writing on social media uh, about you you're, you know, sneaking out at night and to go steal cars. You know, you sneak out at night, you steal cars and you're, you know, on social media and you're saying, look, you know, I'm with my friends. Look, we broke into this car. Look, we did all these things. So you're giving like a real time report of what's happening. And then the coppers get you and then you go to jail and then you pay the fine. And then, you know, you do whatever you do, community service, you do all these things, whatever the judge has you do. And then in while you're in jail, you become a Christian. And you repent of your ways. You're a born-again believer. And praise be to the Lord. And then after community service, you sit down and you start documenting like a little a little diary or a journal. You know, I just trip out, you know, diary and journal. What's the difference? Well, if you're a girl, diary. If you're a guy, journal. <laughs> I mean, if you're a guy and you say, oh, yeah, I have a diary, you know, don't tell it to anybody. But it's really a diary. Don't tell it to anybody. Don't tell it, especially other guys. You know, Don't say that, you know, oh, I, got, I wrote my diary. No, just say journal. Okay, but if you're a girl, you can say a diary. Um, so that's what it's like, you know. So you're you're a Christian now. You're outside, out of prison, out of jail. You've deserved your time. You did your community service. You're a Christian. You're born again, and then you write an account of when you were with your friends. You decided to bust out. You know, sneak out at night, break into cars, and you know you paid your price. You went to jail. You got caught by the cops. It's a different perspective. It's the same account, but it's a different perspective. Because one is real time, like it's happening. And the next is like, you know, after the fact, after you're, you're different, you've been chastised. And that's, that's the Kings and the Chronicles. So there's a lot of similarities, but the difference is that one is post, uh, um, you know, after uh, uh, captivity, Post-captivity. One is before captivity, like, like real time, and then the next is uh, um, uh, after captivity. So that's the difference from the kings. And we're going to study that more. I, mean, I just want to say that Caleb and Hosea, Hosea or Joshua, very interesting that we see Ephraim and jo- like a little remnant, Ephraim and Joshua. And so look what happens here. Or I, not Ephraim and jo- uh, uh, Judah judah and uh, ephraim so caleb from judah and joshua hoshea from ephraim so you see the uh uh, ephraim and judah here and so in verse 9 from the tribe of benjamin palti the son of refu from the tribe of zebulun gadiel the son of Sodi, from the tribe of joseph that is from the tribe of manasseh very interesting here because remember manasseh was the uh gentile son of joseph Remember, Joseph had a, a a Gentile wife of Egypt, and they had Gentile babies. And Manasseh is the son. And remember, Jacob blessed Ephraim first, if you recall, in our study in Genesis 48. Jacob blessed Ephraim first. And so we're going to see passages where, you know, if you read uh, Genesis 48, you think like, wow, you know, he made a mistake. You know, why did he, he bless Ephraim first? I mean, his vision was kind of bad and he blessed uh, uh, Ephraim first. Even jo- Joseph was like, hey, you know, you're making a mistake. But Jacob said, no, this is no mistake. This is no mistake. And we're going to see that in latter chapters. And even in the Kings and Chronicles, we're going to see that. And so you see here, uh, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Volshi; From the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Meki. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, joshua so you see yeah, when i said in verse 8 that hoshea is joshua verse 16 explains that moses called hoshea the son of nun joshua joshua is it translates as yahweh is salvation that's how joshua is a type of christ a type of christ not the christ but a type of christ and you know you see that exemplified in like you know you hear me say uh joseph as a type of christ moses as a type of christ Joshua is a type of Christ. How many people in in the entirety of Scripture are a type of Christ? And not to lift up the person, not to puff up Moses and lift him up and exalt him. Because remember, they're just servants in the master's house. But even still a type of Christ. And that's what's so beautiful when the Lord says, Abide in me and I in you. Because it's like, wow, how much of Christ is in you? How much can the people see? How much can the world see? How much can your family see? How much can your spouse see? How much can your parents see? How much can your kids see? How much can, you know, your neighbors see? Your friends, your colleagues, how much can they see? Not you, Jesus. How much? I meant, we talked about Brother James and his writing. We just looked at his writing in James 1. But his heart was so in tune with the Lord and the Lord so in tune with him that the Lord says, okay, what you're writing is going to be captured in Holy Scripture. And the word became flesh. Whoa, it's not to deify James. It's to say, whoa, look how close his heart was with the Lord. And we're being exhorted today, 2,000 some years later, give or take a couple of years. And so in verse 17, then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, so now he gives the mission. This is the, the, the recon mission, and this is the orders of the mission. So he has a, a group of guys when, you know, the, to, uh, from each, in verse two, from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone, a leader among them. And so that's the, that's the, the squad, so to speak. And so they go out on this recon mission and here are the orders in verse 17. It says, then Moses sent sent them out to spy out the land of Canaan, and said this and said to them, "Here's the mission. Go up this way into the south, and go up to the mountains, and see what the land is like. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many. Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. Whether the, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds." Whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. And that's, you know, end quote. So there's the end of the orders. That's the end of the orders right there in verse 20. Now the time of this. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. I love this so much. This timing of the season translates as the first fruits, the first fruits. And, you know, I love it and I hate it. I don't like it because this first generation, they make mistakes. And the mistake, it costs them heavily. They have to die in the wilderness. It costs them heavily because of their doubt, because of their fear. It costs them heavily. That's the part I hate. But the part I love Is that it it prepares them for the, it prepares the next generation, not them. It prepares the next generation. And what a hardcore message that is for parents and even grandparents. When you let your mistakes, you let the bad in your life, let it prepare the next generation. You know, like. Uh, you, you say there's a tremendous sin in your life that you give to the Lord and the Lord cleans you up. And then you have a kid that's going in that same direction. Well, you can go to the kid and say, hey, my son, hey, baby girl, you know what? This is what the Lord did in my life. I too did that. I too went out and hung out with people like that. And this is what it did for me. This is the pain it caused. This is the mistakes I make. This is the hurt that it caused, not just for me, but for our family, for this person, for this person, for this person. This is the pain that it caused. And you as the parent or even the grandparent, you've paid a heavy, heavy price because you've had to reap what you have sown. You've paid a heavy price. And don't be discouraged. I mean, there is that element of discouragement, like, wow, you know, and I mean, I shouldn't say discouragement, but there's that element of like, uh, shame, shame. I meant, but flip the coin. There is a beauty to that. And the beauty might not be for you per se. The beauty can, I mean, it can be for you in terms of how the Lord can use that. But what about the blessing it can be on the next generation? What about the blessing it can be for your son, for your daughter, for your grandson, for your granddaughter? Your great 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 granddaughter or great granddaughter. I shouldn't say great great. I don't know if there's any of those around. Got to be really old. But your great granddaughter, great great grandson, that's about it. I haven't met anybody older than that. But they might exist. But how beautiful it is when you take your mistakes and rather than focus on the shame, which I'm the first to admit, I know things of the past, actions of the past, mistakes of the past, they are shameful. Painful even to think about or talk about or discuss. But what about when you use that to help another person in their walk with the Lord and it becomes beautiful? You see? Because outside of Christ, you know what happens in families? Mistakes get perpetuated. There's the perpetual nature of sin. Or like, you know, a father figure would be like, Oh yeah, you know, I used to drink and party with my friends. And then you have a son who's 15 years old. And he's telling the kid, Oh yeah, I used to drink and party with my friends. And you do it too. You'll have a grand old time. You'll have a lot of fun. You'll meet all these people. And so all of a sudden that 15 year old starts dabbling with alcohol. And then, you know, 38 you know, liver disease, age 38, liver disease, age 40, liver disease, because he's been drinking his whole life, the hard stuff. It started with alcohol, and then it just got harder and harder and harder, and now his liver's shot. You see? Liver disease. And then he dies. That's what I say, like, mistakes get perpetuated. And I say this, like, you know, I say that you think, oh, he's just going off on his tangent again. But these are real-world scenarios. We live in a world where we see these happen you don't have to you know like uh, before like 20 years ago you'd read the account of jonah and you know jonah being swallowed up by a whale and then you think like oh, really He's swallowed by a whale okay i'm just gonna accept it by faith but then like now we live in a day and age the the, the internet age you know where you go to youtube and you see whales pop you see like kayakers. You know, here they are in their little raft, their little kayak in the middle of the ocean or the middle of wherever they are. And you see these big whales come up. And it's like, whoa, it's not it's not hard to believe Jonah being swallowed by a whale now. Because we see it with our eyes. We go to YouTube. You can search it. You can see it. And it's like, wow, you know. It's, it's like we live in a, a generation where these things aren't, uh, uh, they're easy to understand now. Easy because we see it with our eyes. But even that alone, it's kind of like, wait, okay, did it really take me to see it with my eyes in order to believe? That's why we're told to walk by faith. Walk by faith. And we learn. You might walk by faith, but today it's a little bit of faith. And then you walk by faith, and it's just a little tiny bit. You like walking with your eyes wide open. But then you make a mistake. And then you learn from your mistake. You repent. And you learn from your mistake. You allow patience to have its perfect work. And then you walk by greater faith. Maybe you have your eyes squinted open. Because you want to walk by faith, but you just, just to make sure. And then you make another mistake. And you learn from your mistakes to the point where now your walk, your eyes are just completely shut. Got a blindfold on now because you learn to walk by faith. And that's the beauty of our walk with the Lord. He teaches us. Sometimes we can be impatient because it's like, wow, I want I want to do all these things for you, Lord, and I want to do it right now. Or I want to, you know, do whatever it is. I want to, you know, I want to glorify you, Lord, with my life and I want to do it right here, right now. What if the Lord says, you know what? I'm down. I, I want to do it with you, too, except you're not ready. See, we have to be trained up. That's why Paul says to the, his pastoral epistles, don't choose a novice. He tells them, he warns them, don't use a novice. Because novices aren't ready for spiritual combat. And so look what happens here. So, you know, the end of the orders are given in verse 20. And at the end of verse 20, now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. And then you hear me talk about how, you know, like for parents and grandparents, let your mistakes be, uh, turn it into beauty for your kids and grandkids. Don't perpetuate the bad habits. Don't perpetuate the sin. Don't perpetuate the carnal lifestyle. Don't perpetuate the hypocrisy in the life of your kids and grandkids. The bad stuff, let it die with you. Let it die inside of you. And let your kids have a fresh start. By teaching them and pouring into them. Let your grandkids have a fresh start by teaching them and pouring into them. You see the ministry of parents and grandparents. In verse 21, so they went up. So the the orders were given. And so now you have in verse 21, so they went up and spied out the land. So they're in obedience now. From the wilderness of Zin, as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamat, so now they're they're actually like on their recon mission this small group of guys you know this small crew they're on their recon mission this little squad and what are they doing they're gathering intel near the entrance of hamath they are in verse 22 and they went up through the south and came to hebron shy and Tamai, the descendants of Anak, were there. You see, so they're they're on their recon mission, and this is what, the, what this is what they're able to see. They see like, wow, you know, this is what they discover. The descendants of Anak were there. Now, why is that a big deal? The descendants of Anak. We're gonna study that in a little bit. But that's what they see. That's what they observe. Wow, we get into all these places. We're on our recon mission. We're doing, you know, as a little squad. And we're traveling. We're traversing the land. We're going up the mountain. We're, seeing, we're observing all these things. And we're going to give a report. And in our report, okay, we're doing all these things in obedience. And then all of a sudden, boom, we see the descendants of Anak. Whoa. What does that mean? We're going to find out. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Very interesting because these lands, they're lands that Abraham and Sarah, they traveled through. These lands. I mean, some of the, I say these names and you might be like, wow, I read about that in Genesis. Well, if you recall in our study in Genesis, you see that Abraham and Sarah, they traveled through these lands. In verse 23, then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. So they're on their 40-day mission. That's, you know, that's quite a bit of time. If you've ever gone on recon, if you've ever been like out in the field, living out in the bush for a while, Man, you know, uh, forty days, sixty days, eighty days, you know, and you're just living out in the bush. It's like you know, it's it's pretty wild living. And here you have this forty day recon mission, in verse twenty six. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran, at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. You read this and you're like, wow, beautiful. They've been obedient up until this point. They're obedient. I mean, they're they're about to give the report of what they've seen, what they've experienced. And you see obedience. Everything's fine and dandy. No complaints here. But then verse 27 happens. They give the report. Then they told him and said, remember, this is like in verse 26. It's word. They brought back word to Moses and all the congregation. And so they told him and said in verse 27, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is the fruit. Remember, they, 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 they had the, uh, uh, in verse 23, they had the grapes and they had the pomegranates and the figs. And they say, here, look, here's the fruit. Just as the Lord, you know, the Lord told them, I'm bringing you to a place of land and the land of milk and honey. And how beautiful that is. You know, when you have the promises of the Lord in the Bible, I mean, we do have it. But our carnal nature likes the good stuff. I mean, how, how could we not want the good stuff? I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, you read the good passages and it's like, wow, this is beautiful. I like this. I want this for my life. But not all the passages are that pleasing to the flesh. I mean, the chastisement of the Lord. My flesh doesn't like that, but my spirit loves it. You see, I mean, people say oh, you're like, "Oh, I like the promise of the Lord and how the Lord has good things for us." Yes, so do I. Oh, but I don't like how the Lord chastises us. Well, my flesh doesn't like it, but my spirit loves it because we're being trained. You see, nobody counts it joyful for the mo- joyful for the moment, but. It is joyful because of what it produces. That's from Hebrews 12. You see. In verse 28, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw. Notice the the sight versus faith. We saw with our eyes the descendants of Anak there. So milk and honey. Verse 27, milk and honey, easy to accept because it's the good stuff. But once we saw the descendants of Anak, you know, opposition is not easy. I like the milk and honey, but Anak, I'm no it. I don't like it. Uh, milk and honey, yes. Anak, no. Do you see what's happening here? Look at your own life in juxtaposition what's happening with Israel here. We do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing. Lord, I like this. I love this passage. I love this verse. I love this book. And then we turn the page. Oh, no, Lord. I don't. This one, I don't like. I don't like this, Lord. I've done that myself. Granted, it was a while ago. You know, a little bit. I was a little younger in my spiritual age. But today... I read those same passages, even passages that are painful, and I love it. Why? Because the Lord is changing us. He's changing you. He's changing me. We are the ones who have to allow Him. I say we have to, but you have a choice to make for yourself. We have to allow Him to make that change in our lives. You see people that don't do that. But then you also see the fruit of that. You see the fruit of their choices, the fruit of their decisions. You see it. You see it in their life. You see it in their family's life. You see it under their roof. You see it in their kids. You see it. Opposition is not easy, you know. And that, whatever form that is for you in your walk with the Lord, it's not easy. I'm not going to say it's a piece of cake. But it's not impossible. Impossible. In Christ you see remember for Israel God just got done destroying Egypt not too long ago I mean if if we're gonna look like time wise on the timeline of things not too long ago God just got done destroying Egypt straight up like God on earth Pharaoh God on earth no army stronger than Egypt and God just got done destroying them and rescued Israel the exodus from egypt and now they're afraid of anak i guess you know you could look at it from one perspective and be like how come god destroyed egypt but god isn't going to destroy Anak?" look at the youth of israel look at their youth in terms of their faith in the lord When when the Lord destroyed Egypt, what was what was the growth of Israel? What was their state of maturity? With the Lord. They were babies. And now after all the Lord has done, the Lord has this expectation of, okay, Israel, now it's your turn to fight. Now, do you understand as Christians why Paul, especially in our study in Corinthians and 1 Corinthians one and two, and you see why Paul is addressing this church of babies, the church in Corinth, you know, when he says, I wish I could speak to you like you guys were adults, but no, you I have to teach you like you're on milk again because of arrested development. They weren't able to take in the deep spiritual things and they were spiritually uh, immature. They were spiritual babies. And they couldn't take the deep spiritual things to equip them, to teach them about spiritual warfare. That happens later on in 1 Corinthians, and it also happens in 2 Corinthians. As they mature, as they grow, as they repent of the carnal nature. But Paul still has to deal with their carnality. The carnality has to be addressed, and then the church is able to You know, he's able to write to them about spiritual warfare. You see? Very interesting because look at what the Lord had done to Egypt. And then now he has the expectation, okay, you guys have to fight now. Because sometimes the Lord will go to battle for us. I mean, how many passages do we read about where the battle is not ours, it's his? How many passages do we read about where, you know, where the Lord tells a people, you go to sleep. The Lord tells a king, you go to sleep. I'll take care of this. How many? We read it. It's, it's in scripture. It's encapsulated in scripture in various occasions, multiple occasions, multiple situations to a very special people. But then at the same time, there are other passages of scripture where the lord tells his people, "Okay, you go fight." You know, this, you know, I, I'm giving you this, but you have to fight. You see? Spiritual warfare. I mean, for Israel it was physical warfare. For the church, spiritual warfare. All the promises of God we have, but then at the same time to understand that there are certain aspects in spiritual warfare where we there's the expectation that the Lord has for us to fight. That's why we have these letters where you know the Holy Spirit put it upon the hearts of these holy men to write to us, to equip us, to equip you for the work of the ministry. And in the work of the ministry, do you think you're not going to face opposition? We see it in the book of Acts, all the opposition. Now, it wasn't like a war opposition where, you know, the Christians go out and they start killing other people. No, it's just the opposite. The Christians got killed by other people. But it's spiritual warfare. You see, look at, you know, when I was a young believer, like 20 years ago, I was, you know, lukewarm, one foot in the world, one foot in the church 25 years ago. And I hated the account i hated reading about stephen i hated reading about stephen so much but i was a youngster i was a baby in christ i wanted him to fight i wanted him to kill i wanted him to do all these things i wanted the other christians to go out and kill beat up the guys who were throwing stones i wanted you know church where are you guys why aren't you fighting why aren't you just kill them but i was a baby Today I read the account of Stephen and he is amongst the most mighty of men. Why? Because the Lord changed my heart. Maturity in Christ. It's not to say the fight isn't there. The fight is there. Except it's spiritual. And the Lord does have an expectation for His people to fight. And we fight on our knees. Now if you're in ministry... A teacher pastor elder music ministry whatever ministry you definitely have to know how to fight you definitely have to know how to fight because satan wants to kill you even more i mean if you're like a, a christian you know praise be to the lord satan wants to kill you but if you're a teacher pastor elder deacon bishop ministry leader youth leader whatever the enemy wants to kill you even more You know, and before killing you, he wants to bring you in his camp. If he brings you in his camp, he won't kill you because you're now his servant. You see, that's why, you know, you can't be an apostate. You know, you have to fight. You have to know the Bible. Don't be an apostate. You see, I have all these pastors, elders, they're turning into apostates and they're leading God's people into apostasy, which is prophesied to happen. But you can't be an apostate. You have to to stand firm. You have to know the Bible. You have to stand firm, understand spiritual warfare. You have to test the spirits, understanding that Satan presents himself as an angel of light. And you have to know scripture. If Satan presents himself as an angel of light, you have to know scripture. And before Satan kills, if you're a ministry leader, before Satan kills you, he'll try to transition you from the camp of the Lord into his camp because he wants to use you as a vessel. Remember, Satan's a fisherman, too. Never forget that. Satan's a fisherman. But you have to be wise. See, peaceful as doves, wise as serpents. Wise as a serpent. And so look what happens here in verse 29. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So, wow. You see, a bunch of reasons to be afraid. In verse 28 and 29, you have a bunch of reasons to be afraid. Now, are these valid reasons? You see? You have all this form of opposition. Are these valid reasons to be afraid? Now, understand that we have a huge, tremendous luxury today. Because, I mean, we're studying Numbers 13. We're looking at this passage in Numbers 13. It's like, okay, well. Uh, I I'm not here I, I'm not I'm not in uh, uh the wilderness of Paran. I'm not there. I'm not there hearing this report. You're not there. We're not in Paran. We have this luxury of looking at these passages and say, "Okay, that's for them. It's not for me. That's not for me. That's not for us." That's a luxury that we have. But wait a second. What about when it is us? What about when it is you? And I'm not talking about when the Lord takes you to Paran, but spiritually speaking, what about if the Lord has you in a state of being in the wilderness of Paran? Or what about when the Lord wants to take you from point A to point B? And you come up with all these reasons to be afraid, just like what's happening here in verses 28 and 29. All the people who dwell there, they're strong. Their cities are fortified. They're very large. The descendants of Anak are there. We got the Amalekites. We got the Hittites. We got the Jebusites. We got the Amorites. We got the Canaanites. A bunch of reasons to be afraid. What about your reasons to be afraid? Do those things... The fact that the... Uh, the Anak was there. The Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. Are do those invalidate the promises of God? It's all I mean, that's. It's kind of like it's a question that's. It depends on you. The answer depends on you. Because we could look at that, and be like, no way. God's promises are a sure thing. There's no reason to be afraid. But what about when you're in the thick of it? What about when you're right smack dab in the middle of Anak of the Amalekites, of the Hittites, of the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites? You're right smack dab in the middle of all these reasons to be afraid. You're right smack dab in the middle of all these reasons to doubt. Does that invalidate the promises of God? That's a hardcore question. I mean, we have a tremendous luxury today to say, Oh no, you know, oh no, the... The Lord, we can take his word and we take it, we we, we can, you know, we can lean on him for everything. And I don't mean to say it like that, but encapsulating this mindset that, that, you know, in this luxury, you know, it's easy when you're outside of these tough situations. But what about when you're in, in the thick of it? What about when the Amalekites are right there? What about when the Hittites are right there? The Jebusites are right there. And you look at them. Of course, metaphysically speaking, the Canaanites, you look at them. And that people are strong. Their cities are fortified. And they're very large. It's not just one. It's not just two. It's multitudes of people. Multitudes of Amalekites, Amorites, Canaanites. Can you still say that you will lean on God's promises? I pray yes. I hope yes. I desire yes. But I'm the first to admit sometimes you will stumble in that regard. And that's when James 1 comes into play. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see? Doubt isn't good. Doubt is poison in the life of a Christian. Doubt and fear, it's poison in the life of a Christian. Inside of me, inside of you. Let us be a people that learns to kill this doubt. And lean on the promises of the, of the Lord even more and more and more and more every day through trial and tribulation. That we can be a people that counts it all joy when we fall into various trials. You know what that means? How it, it's in James chapter 1 verse 2 when he says count it joy when you fall into various trials. You know, it's a military term. And it tried to, to, to fall into. It's a military term, which means to be surrounded with. You're surrounded by all kinds of various tribes. You're surrounded by Anak, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, in whatever shape or form they're in. You're surrounded. There's this saying among certain circles. You know, that being surrounded is a good thing because you get to fight in every direction. You get to shoot in every direction. It's not a bad thing to be surrounded. You think, oh, it's the end of us. It's the end of us or, you know, break it down to just one. It's the end of me. It's the end of me. Look, I'm surrounded. You know what's so cool about being surrounded? You look up. You look up and rely on the Lord all these weapons formed against you. And you look up and remember the promises of the Lord that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. I'll repeat that. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. You see? Now you start to understand when Paul gives this admonition to the church and says these things written of old are written for our warning, are written for our admonition, they're written for you and me, a people of the new covenant. Let us not be afraid. Let us not doubt. So all these reasons to be afraid. And then look what happens here in verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. So imagine this report. This report is being said, all the the Amalekites, the Jebusites, and people are hearing it. And they're like, the Amalekites? Oh, my goodness. The Jebusites? The Amorites? All this fear is starting to spread through the people, through the camp. And then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. I like Caleb. I like Caleb, a warrior. I don't know if he was a big guy or if he was a little guy, but look at his mind. Look at his heart. You see? Yielding to the Lord. No, the Lord says he gave us the land. So let's go do it. You see? Oh, but the Anak, they're huge. The Amalekites, are huge. That's nice. I don't care. The Lord promised. Caleb, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. One guy. One guy. You see? You say, wait a second, I thought it was Caleb and and Joshua. Yeah, Caleb and Joshua, but look what's captured here. It was Caleb. He quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. How beautiful this is! I mean, not not to not to give not to discredit uh, uh, Joshua. Joshua has a place. Joshua is like you know he, uh, the the uh, assistant of Moses. He becomes the leader. You know we're gonna see that in a little bit, but you know, not a little bit. Probably you know several more months, but we're gonna see that his leadership. But look at Caleb. Caleb of the tribe of Judah. Hardcore. I like Caleb. Not afraid of a fight. Let us go. Not just, hey, let's go tomorrow. Let's go next week. Let's go right now. At once. Let's go. The Lord promised us. Let's go. Yeah, they're big. You know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Let's go do it. Uh, Not to speak pridefully or boastfully. But look at Caleb's fear. Fear of the Lord. And then look at the people's fear. The people, 28 and, verses 28 and 29. Anak, Amalekites, uh, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites. All these reasons to be afraid. Caleb, who does he fear? God. Let's go up at once and take possession for you're we well able to overcome it. And then the majority speak out. But the man who had gone up with them said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we, you see? Maybe, maybe they were stronger. Arm wrestling, maybe they would lose in an arm wrestling match. But are they stronger than God? You see, are they stronger than God? No way. No way. Remember, these are the people who witnessed Egypt. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out. Remember verse 2, the land was already given to them. Saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. What about them? I meant not that they should be like boastful and be like, oh, we're of great stature. But what about them with the Lord? After all he has done, he the Lord defeated Egypt. The Lord is with the cloud. Remember wherever the cloud goes, they, they would go. The Lord is with them. And yet fear is. It's like poison. Their doubt is like a poison. In verse 33, there we saw the giants. Now this is nephim, nephim in the Hebrew. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants. Very interesting. So what do we see here? These are the, uh, the giants, translates as nephim nephim, But they are, it, 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 it it's the Nephilim. Remember we talked about, we studied the Nephilim in our study in Genesis? Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight, you see. They're like, man, we're little guys. We're little pipsqueaks. These guys are huge, mighty warriors. And look at us. We're just little pipsqueaks. We're just like little grasshoppers. Carnal eyes don't see the strength of God. Carnal eyes don't rely on the promises of God. Carnal eyes are incapable of understanding and seeing the strength of God. But you, we are a people. Who walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. Very interesting that is. Nephim Nephim. Because it's a derivative of Nephilim. And Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6 verse 4. This is pre-flood. So how could these descendants of the Nephilim be. If the flood happened after the fact. So two things are happening here. Either the fallen angels. The Nephilim. Either the fallen angels are back to their old tactics or the people are giving a false report these men are giving a false report now regardless of whatever it is whether the fallen angels are back to their tricks or whether the fa- false report is being given regardless of that fear fear the doubts of these this report the fear of the men giving this report Fear can be endemic. You have to understand that fear can be endemic. And that's not a good situation. When fear and doubt become endemic and spread to the people, that's not good. That's why you got to let it die inside of you. You have to kill it inside of you. And we're going to see as we get on in future subsequent chapters and books, the Amalekites is a type of sin. That's why the Lord gives the command to Samuel, hey, kill all the Amalekites. And we understand the Amalekites is a type of sin. You have to kill it inside of you. Just like the Lord says, go and sin no more. And that's the danger of sin, the danger of trespass, because it weakens us. Points of vulnerability in our armor. That's not good. Because you have to have the... Full armor. Fear is not good. Fear, when it becomes endemic, is not good. The only way it is, is when it's the fear of the Lord. When you have the fear of the Lord inside of you, praise be to the Lord. That's a good thing. And when your fear of the Lord becomes endemic in other people, praise be to the Lord. That's a good thing. And that's the only time fear becomes a good thing is when it's of the Lord properly in its place or in its proper place. Fear of the Lord, which the Bible teaches us is the beginning of wisdom. You know what's so sad what happens in, you know, not to fast forward too much, but in chapter 14. The people, they learn their lesson in chapter 14, verse 40. And they think they're okay. They say in chapter in, in chapter 14, verse 40, they say, here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Now you read it and you think, wow, okay, good. The, the people are acknowledging their sin. But it's too late. The Lord had already made his verdict when he said in uh, verse 29, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. And the people think, okay, we have sinned. Let's acknowledge our sin. Now let's go up. Let's go up to the battle. In verse 41, and Moses said, Now, why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. You see, they're not ready for battle. They're going to attempt to fight without God. When I speak about fighting and battle and combat, it's not carnal. I mean, sometimes I make references the carnal references and fleshly references. But understand the ultimate focal point is spiritually speaking in our walk with the Lord. Because I tell you what happens. There's so many babies in the church and I I don't say baby. I mean, immature. They haven't moved on to perfection. They have not matriculated and gone from kindergarten to first grade, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and on to perfection. They have not. The church today, and I teach from the United States, the Western culture. The church is on its way to apostasy. Except for a remnant. But the church, by large, is on its way to apostasy. Which identifies their spiritual immaturity. And it reminds me. The large majority of Christians. The large majority inside the church. It reminds me of. Verse. 40. Where they're like. Okay let's go to battle. You know here. We will go up to the place the Lord has promised. Let's do it. Not understanding that. The Lord is not with them. The Lord is not among you. You say, wait a second, how dare you say that? You say they're Christians, but now you say that the Lord is not with them. Don't forget that in this state of apostasy, it's also a state of a uh, a derangement. It's also a state of, you know, uh, uh, when God gives a person over. Number one, to a debased mind. But also strong delusion. It's a form of judgment. It's not a good thing at all. And it's so sad. It breaks my heart because it's like, wow, you're going to have a people go to war here in in chapter 14 a people go to war, except they're without the Lord. And it's not just here. We're going to see it in the in future books. Israel, when they go to war, except the glory of the Lord is not with them. And they lose. They lose fights. They lose battles. What about in your walk with the Lord? I mean, you hear me rail against sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, uh, drugs, alcohol, being a tax cheat, doing all these things, things of the flesh. You hear me rail against these things, but it's not just for the sake of railing against them. But all these little things—it's like, wait a second. Where is the glory of the Lord? Because you don't have to go out to battle. The battle—you know—the enemy is going to confront you. He will. But if you're ill-equipped and not ready, you see. Especially in terms of in spiritual warfare and in in, in, in uh, you know how we're taught how in um. I'll turn there really quick. In Matthew chapter 12, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, you read that and you're like, wow, praise the Lord. An unclean spirit is leaving the guy. How beautiful this is. And yes, it is good. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. This unclean spirit, this demon goes out of a man. And then he says he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Oh, now what happens? Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Now, you, you think, okay, wow, it cleaned up and put in order. But you see here, it's empty. And this empty, it translates is like a holiday, like on vacation. And that's why, you know, we used to have this saying in the military, is complacency kills? Complacency kills. You want to be complacent? You're going to die. That was our saying. Complacency kills, and indeed it does. We can never be a people that learns complacency or grows complacency. I should say, rots complacent. Don't. Because now look what happens. This demon who's left, you're like, wow, praise the Lord, the unclean spirit is out of the guy, but he comes back. In verse 45, then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. You see? And that's the danger of, you know, you think, okay, wow, well, you know, once saved, I, 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 once saved, always saved, I said the sinner's prayer, I'm good to go. Yeah, you know, you said the sinner's prayer, you're a Christian, now you're born again, a believer, praise be to the Lord, now let's get you trained up. You have to be equipped. You have to learn how to fight. Hand to hand combat. You have to learn how to use your shield, use your sword, wear the breastplate, wear the helmet. You have to learn how to use it and fight. Because whatever demon, that demon's going to come back and he's going to come back with his friends. Will you be ready? Will you be ready? Will you understand what's happening? A demon leaves, wow, I'm born again, I'm saved. Praise be praise be to the Lord. And yes, praise be to the Lord. I'm not I'm not saying that's a bad thing, it's a beautiful thing. I love it. But that demon is gonna come back, not alone with his friends. And that last date is worse than the first state of the man. And that's what you see today in the church. People who are born-again believers, and then all of a sudden, in the course of time, something happens. Where they go back to the crack pipe. They go back to the sexual. They go back to the strip clubs. They go back to the prostitutes. They go back to the alcohol. They go back to whatever. And the worst state of that man is worse than the first. Thus fulfilling what the Lord tells us. You see? It's brutal. It's a fight. It's a, I mean, it, It's straight up combat. We have to be a people trained up. So we're gonna end our study here, and we're gonna pick up. You know, I for the most part I don't like reading chapters ahead, but we looked at a little bit of numbers, like fourteen. We looked at certain references, but to understand in the in the in the uh, not to say that the grand scheme of scheme of things, but the in the in, the in the in this picture of what's happening, it's not entirely a good thing. It's good for the next generation. But don't forget, the next generation passes through the promise. They, they get to the promised land. But they're still in the wilderness. They're, they're, they're still in the wilderness. They still have to walk through the wilderness. They have to reap what was sown by their the, the older generation. What a tremendous lesson this is for parents and grandparents. You know... Grease the skids for your kids. Grease the skids for your grandkids. Great grandkids. Make their walk easy with the Lord. Teach them the things of the Lord. Tell them when, you know, your grandson wants to do crack. You say, man, you know, I used to do crack too. Maybe not crack, but, you know, marijuana. All All the kids nowadays, they're doing marijuana. So a kid, you know, oh yeah, you know, my friends wanted to go do marijuana. You say, no, look, I used to do that. There's shame in that. There's shame in, in the past. I'm not, I'm not trying to say there isn't. But you turn the coin of that shame. You see? Trade your ashes in for beauty. And let the Lord do his work. And you tell that kid, you tell that the younger generation, no, you don't want to do that. You don't want to make the mistake that I made. Because look what happened. Look what it did to me. Look at what it turned me into. And this, look at what happened. Whatever manifestation, the sin, whatever, what you had to reap, what you had sown. Don't let that happen in your grandkid. Don't let that happen in your son, your daughter, whatever. But you grease the skid for the next generation of righteousness. You help them in their walk with the Lord. Experientially, you see, you be like a Caleb. When everybody's afraid, you're like a Caleb. And then for your sons, for your daughters, for your grandsons, for your granddaughters, when everybody's afraid, they're like a Caleb. And what did Caleb say? Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. He leaned on the promises of God, despite the people's fear. You see how powerful this is? We're going to end our study here. Lord willing, we'll pick up in chapter 14 next week. God bless you guys. Love you guys.